everyone, and welcome to the AI Innovators Podcast. I'm Rob May. I'm the CEO of Nova. And this podcast is part of the AI Innovators community. And as part of this, we look at people that are doing really interesting things, whether they're executives, entrepreneurs, academics, investors, but generally people that are out there on the forefront trying to make AI happen. This is an exciting episode because it's the first time that we're using a co-host format. So Abi Yadav, who runs the community with me, is here today. Hi, everyone. Thanks, Rob, for having me. Our guest today is Eric Duhame from Centaur Labs. Eric, thanks for being on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. So I want to jump in and talk about a question that we get all the time. I'm sure you get it all the time when you work in the AI space, which is everybody says, isn't AI going to take all our jobs? And then, you know, some people out there say no, as some economists say it'll create new jobs. And then other people say, yes, AI is going to take all the jobs. But your company is an example of a company that's creating new jobs because of AI. So, so explain to us the type of work that Centaur Labs does and, and sort of how you how you find and hire people for a job that wasn't there before. Yeah, well, so as you mentioned, we're, we provide data annotation services for companies that are building AI. Specifically, we focus in the medical and scientific realms, but we operate broadly. So to build any good AI algorithm, you need two things. You need data and you need that data labeled. You know, I suppose you need a third thing, which is a lot of GPUs, but the core input to any AI model is labeled data. So now there's this industry that is proliferating where you've got workers around the world that are tagging data for one thing or another. I mean, most people will be familiar with Google wanting them to prove that they're not a robot by pointing at pictures of trees and cars and crosswalks and things like that. And and some people don't know that the reason it's often auto-related is that they're helping label data to train self-driving cars. So it works well enough for self-driving cars for some simple use cases to have random people on the internet prove that they're not robots and labeled crosswalks in the process of doing that. But to build more complicated AI models, you need to hire workers who might have skills and expertise to tag data. On the on the lead up question about whether AI is going to take jobs or not, I also I don't think it's all about AI will take some jobs, but now there will be people building AI. Certainly we're an example of a business that is creating work, you know, to make AI happen. But what I think really is going on in terms of the fear of is AI going to take people's jobs is that AI doesn't replace work, but it does change how work is organized. So we've seen these fears, you know, time and time again, this isn't the first time we as a society have had these conversations. One, One example I like a lot is that in, I think it was the 70s or 80s, people were talking about how ATM machines were going to replace bank tellers and put them all out of the job. And that's not what happened. So ATM machines made it cheaper for banks to roll out additional branches. And this increased the number of branches. It increased the number of people with access to banking services, and it increased the speed and quality of those services. The jobs didn't disappear, but they did change. So tasks were taken by AI, not jobs. And bank tellers today, they're more highly educated today than they were 30 years ago. And they now spend less time doing things like cashing checks and dispensing cash and more time doing things like answering customer questions or cross-selling additional products. And I think you're going to see that happen across society, across the economy. You're going to see most jobs will not be replaced by AI, but most jobs will be changed by AI. 
Interesting. Eric, what's the most surprising thing you have learned about the data labeling space compared to the assumption you had going into this business? I think the most surprising thing I've learned is that it can be ugly. You know, when when I first started, uh, like I said, most of the tasks were were tedious, mundane tasks, but they were things like tagging street signs or crosswalks. And today there's a lot out there about how workers are traumatized from their data annotation work. They're doing things like content moderation, and it can be nasty. There was recently an article, I think last week in the Wall Street Journal, that was pretty critical of the struggles of data annotation workers in Kenya that OpenAI used to provide the human feedback to build ChatGPT because they're, they're reading a lot of racist or sexual content that can be difficult for readers to spend 10 hours a day reading and moderating. But one thing I'm, I'm pretty proud of is that our business model helps to change that. So we focus on skilled annotation work, like I was saying, primarily in the medical and life sciences. And because we do skilled work, what we've done differently is rather than hiring a bunch of full-time workers that don't have any say over what they're doing, we have a competitive gamified platform. We have a mobile app called Diagnose Us, one word diagnosis, but with a U instead of an I as the second to last letter. And annotators are trying to prove that they're the best, most accurate annotator to show up higher on a leaderboard to win more money. So everyone opts into what they do. And most of our annotators actually see it as a game. Many of them are actually med students that use it as a free educational tool. And in fact, seeing my wife pay hundreds of dollars for apps to practice on cases when she was a med student is one of the things that motivated me to start the company. I I figured, hey, this could be productive work and we could pay you rather than the other way around. So there's definitely a lot of ugly stuff out there in the industry as a whole. But I'm quite happy that because of the domain that we work in and our business model, that our workers are actually gamers that are having fun and improving their skills while they're doing it. And what does that mean for how you acquire your customers on that side of the marketplace? Do you present this to them as a downloadable game? Do you have to do a lot of paid acquisition? Or are there other ways that you can get people doing this? And then also, do you just find people in the US? Or or is this something you can do worldwide? Yeah, so recruiting these people is actually the the easiest part of our business, believe it or not. The game is a free game on the App Store where people can earn money for practicing and improving their skills on medical cases or, or doing a wide range of other things. So we spend almost no money on marketing to these users. It's mostly word of mouth. The little bit of marketing we do is, you know, every now and then we'll pay a doctor or someone on TikTok that has a small following and pay them a couple hundred bucks to promote the app. And every now and then it'll go viral. That's pretty much the only marketing we do. So we've had a lot of success recruiting a large network of tens of thousands of medical students and doctors and nurses and other people around the world to, to tag data for us. In terms of where they are, like I said, they're all around the world. They're, today, they're about half in the United States, but we have people in just about every country, every country where there's iPhones and, and PayPal. So not you know a couple countries where there's sanctions, but otherwise, the workers are all over the world, but they're predominantly in the United States. And like I said, recruiting them is, is not really a challenge for us. Interesting. So walk us through the workflow of a piece of data. Like, how does it get to you? How does it get labeled? What if there's a conflict in the labeling process? How do you do QA? How does it ultimately get compiled into a model for a customer? Yeah, good question. So starts, the customer is normally the ones that have the data in the first place. Oftentimes, it's a proprietary data set from their medical device or that they've collected from a hospital partnership or something like that. 
We do help customers source data through partners of ours, but most of the time customer has the data, then they upload it to our secure platform, or they can hook up their own cloud so the data can remain on their servers. And what our annotators technically see is they get temporary view access to an encrypted file sitting on our customer servers. So the data is not leaving their servers. And then the annotators actually, they can't download the file or even take a screenshot or they're banned from the platform. Or customers can ping us data via API. Once we have a batch of data from a client, the most challenging step comes next, which is aligning with the client on what exactly their task is and what good quality is. So this is straightforward if it's easy stuff like, is there a crosswalk here? But it isn't that straightforward in healthcare or other areas where skill is required. You know, experts disagree with each other all the time. And oftentimes there isn't even a clear standard about what defines a certain class or a certain feature. Like, you know, what determines whether something is a potentially cancerous lung nodule is different in the EU versus in the US. And in both places, experts will disagree with each other half the time. So the first step is aligning on a gold standard set, you know, some a couple dozen or a hundred examples with the client that we agree these are done well. Either the client already has those or we'll create them by leveraging multiple subject matter experts from our network. The reason we make these is that these are then used to create the competitions that I talked about. So our competitive annotators then enter these competitions to annotate the data. And we're mixing in the cases that we know the answers to with the ones that we don't know the answers to. So that's our first QC step actually is annotators are only trusted if they're performing at an expert level at the task. I don't necessarily care if they have a certain credential. Sometimes our clients care and we say, okay, we'll get you only US-based doctors or whatever it is. All I care about is that they are performing at an expert level based on a data-driven assessment of that performance. So you need to measure this performance continually because people get tired, they get lazy, and on the the other side of things, they also improve their skills over time. So someone who might not be performing at an expert level initially might train themselves up and get really good. But so the fact that we're measuring performance continually means that we understand who to trust at all times. If someone is having a bad day or they ate something weird for lunch that day, it's fine because we'll identify that very quickly. They'll stop earning money because they'll show up lower on the leaderboard and we'll track that their performance has dropped off. But that also means that we're not trusting their opinion when we send that back to clients. Anyway, once we have a task set up and we have these gold standards created, as new data comes in, it gets intelligently sampled and sent to the competitors based on how many times a case has been seen. And to your point about how much annotators agree with each other. Most of what we're doing is skilled work. So annotators disagree with each other a lot. Again, you know, world experts disagree with each other a lot for for some of these things. So our focus on how to effectively resolve those disagreements is something that sets us apart. When we deliver labels back to the client, everything has been seen by multiple people and cases with high disagreement get seen by even more people. So this drives accuracy. We've got papers showing we are more accurate than board-certified dermatologists attacking skin lesions. We've got a paper showing something similar in the lung ultrasound space. But beyond just driving raw accuracy, it also provides useful information about uncertainty. So we can then go back to the client and say, hey, these are the most controversial cases. You might want to take a look at these. And when they do, they're often edge cases or something they weren't aware of, and, and we might need to update the protocol to account for those edge cases. 
once we've delivered the labels back to the client, we're not normally the ones that are training the model for the client. We certainly can and have built models for customers before, but you know, just because in many ways that's the easy part if you have good data and you have good labels. But most of the time, our client is the AI developer, so they're the ones that are taking it from there and turning the labeled data into the final AI model. That sounds like a fascinating and very complicated process. <laughs> so I'm curious, we, we consider you an AI business and had you on the podcast because your product is a major input to machine learning models. You mentioned this at the beginning, right? Everything needs labeled data. That's a big thing that we need. But are there areas where you use AI inside the business as well, ways that maybe aren't obvious to an outsider? So we're primarily human-powered. Many competitors in the space try to automate as much of the data annotation process as possible. I personally think you need to be careful there. If you automate data labeling, you're going to replicate the biases in the initial labels that you have. You know, with that automation, you're going to end up struggling with edge cases. And if you've got data pre-labeled for, say, a complex segmentation task, that can bias annotators or they might not take the time to carefully correct it. You know, whereas if they're starting from scratch, well, they have to take the time. That said, AI can definitely be very helpful for things like interpolating between frames. You know, if you're trying to make a, an AI model for, for videos, you don't need to annotate every single frame if the frames look identical to each other, if you've got 60 frames a second or something like that. And it can be extremely useful, too, for doing a first pass at certain things. You know, I mentioned we're normally human-powered, but we do leverage AI at the right times. So, for example, we recently had a client where we needed to extract findings from radiology reports and then draw shapes corresponding to each unique finding on the images themselves. And to do this, we first did some did a bit of prompt engineering and used ChatGPT to extract the findings. And you know, at first it was amazing. We, we look at a few examples and thought, wow, this is absolutely incredible. I think most people have had that experience one time or another since ChatGPT came out. But we knew it couldn't really be trusted, so we also had people go through and we showed them everything ChatGPT came up with and basically asked them to confirm whether it was right or not. And when we sifted through all these you know, tens of thousands of notes, we found it was wrong or missed something like 30% of the time. But still, in, in order for our people to extract everything they would have needed, they would have needed to carefully highlight all the relevant characters in the note. And not having to do that 70% of the time saved a lot of work. So there are certainly times where we're using AI in ways like this internally, but I'd, I'd say compared to most others in the space, we're, we're primarily human-powered because we've we found this way to unlock a, a limitless supply of skilled labor. So making an annotator 10% more productive isn't, isn't normally our top priority. So how does that tie to like where you see data labeling going as AI matures? Do you, do you think this is something that's going to become a bigger and bigger need or less of a need, or is it just going to fundamentally change? And, and what are the trends that you're seeing? The more AI technology proliferates, the more demand for labeling is going to increase. I used to get the question, you know, back when we were fundraising for our seed and our series A, like, hey, all right, you're going to label the data and then they're going to train the model and then they're not going to need you anymore. But, you know, a few things happen to increase demand. So first, as the technology improves, there's brand new applications for AI. And when you have a new use case or a new type of data entirely, well, you need to annotate data to build a model for that use case. So for example, we, we do a fair amount of work with point-of-care ultrasound technology. The tech is pretty amazing. Point-of-care ultrasound, it's you know these little handheld devices that cost like $1,000, and you can look 
anywhere inside the human body. Now, this tech didn't exist a few decades ago. And now that it does, there's countless applications that weren't really possible before. So we see a bunch of companies that are building models for new ultrasound applications or even just tools to help guide novice users to capture good images. Another example would be a company we work with, Echo Health, EKO. They've built a digital stethoscope. The fact that it's digital and takes recordings of heart and lung sounds opens up a lot of exciting possibilities for improving patient care like enabling relatively unskilled people doing a home call to capture valuable data. And it also means you can build AI into it. So you can do things like identify heart murmurs using that data. But to do that, you have to capture a bunch of data using the new device and you need to train a new model, which means you need more annotation on a new data format entirely. So as things like wearables and remote monitoring devices evolve, you're going to need to label more and more data to make good models for those things. That said, I think the nature of data annotation is going to change a lot. And I think it's already changing very rapidly in the last year or two. As models get extremely good at the really simple things, AI developers will continue to move on to the harder problems. And I think the impact on demand for data labeling is that you're going to see greater demand for skilled data labeling. So, for example, as I mentioned, OpenAI trained ChatGPT using reinforcement learning with human feedback or RLHF using relatively unskilled workers in Kenya. But if you're trying to provide human feedback on how good your medical AI chatbot is or how to extract findings from x-ray reports, you're going to need people with enough expertise to know how to provide good feedback. So I've been calling this lately, you know, reinforcement learning with expert feedback. And that's increasingly where I think we're headed. I think in the years to come, there's still going to be a lot of work for relatively unskilled people overseas, which is what most other people use. But I think that you're going to see demand increase for highly skilled domain experts doing data annotation, data labeling for companies developing AI. Oh, yeah. As you're talking through that, I can totally think of a use case where you have a video of a surgery and somebody's sort of annotating what's happening and the reasons that certain steps were taking taken during the surgery and like, you know, crazy stuff like that. Um, just all that makes a lot of sense. Absolutely. Just before I got on the phone with you, I was talking to a robotic surgery company that's working on exactly that. And that's, that's what they're interested in is, uh, you know, identifying the steps and assessing surgical skills and things like that. Interesting. So a lot of the people that listen to the podcast are entrepreneurs, they're building companies, trying to figure out what the market wants and needs. So I always like to ask the guests that are on here, do you have any technology problems that you wish somebody else would solve for you to make your life easier at Centaur Labs? Oh, boy, this is a pretty mundane answer, but I guess it applies outside of healthcare too, but some way to magically handle a bunch of different data formats at once. On a day-to-day basis, You know, medical data is messy for a host of reasons, but the thing that pains us most internally, especially our data engineers, is whenever we think we've dealt with every possible image format we come across, there's some client that has some ancient proprietary format for something like pathology images or whatever, and we need to figure out how to work with it. And it's sort of mind-boggling how much effort we spend figuring out how to turn certain image formats into an image and display it for our annotators. So I guess I'm broadly saying if people can work, you know, we're sort of a picks and shovels in the AI gold rush. And I'd say another picks and shovels play would be anything having to do with data interoperability 
if you can make things smoother in terms of handling lots of different data formats, there's going to be opportunity there because AI gets better when it has more data and more diverse data. And if you've got diverse data, you're probably going to deal with it from being from a bunch of different sources and in a bunch of different formats. Yeah, no, that, that totally makes sense. Th- those are the kinds of problems that humans don't like to work on either, right? Like migration problems, transformation problems, things like that. So, so hopefully we can, uh, we can offload those to the machines sooner rather than later. Yeah. So Eric, the one question I always like to, to end on, obviously, you know, you've built a, a nice company here. You've, you've raised a lot of money and done a lot of good stuff. And so people that sort of admire your career path and, and also want to start companies and all that, what's a piece of advice that you've learned, someone taught you along the way, something you read, but it, kind of one thing that you think maybe people should hear that you'd like to share with the listeners? One thing I've learned that I often tell new entrepreneurs, but I suppose it's relevant to, to anyone is... First off, to just start, like get going, and then talk to a lot of people from different backgrounds with different skills and expertise to get feedback on what you're doing, to to get their advice. A lot of people give that advice, but then my advice is don't just take their advice because they're successful or have a fancy title or you look up to them. Instead, triangulate what they're saying with what else you're hearing. You know, again, clearly. You can tell I like this idea that experts disagree with each other all the time and you need multiple opinions to get the real intelligence out of them. And realize that if you're really going for something and talking to that many people about it, you can build a unique perspective there and you should feel confident in that perspective. So I tell people this a lot when they're applying to Y Combinator. Uh, The interview is famously short and because it's short, the interviewer's you know, they might interrupt you and not even listen to the full answer to your question. And what I think they're really doing is when they ask you a question about what you're building or the market or something, I think some people think that they're testing to see if you know the right answer, as though there is a right answer. And then the reason they'll interrupt you is because they don't care what the answer is. They're they're looking for whether you sort of light up and think, oh, I've been asked this a million times. I've thought about this at night in bed, in the shower you know, countless hours. And if they see you light up like that, they know that there might not be a right answer, but you've taken the time and gained the perspective to have an answer as good as anyone can, which is why they don't, they don't need to actually hear the answer. They just need to know that you have thought about it a lot. So I'd say that's my advice is get started, talk to a lot of people, absorb what they're saying, but don't treat it as gospel. Listen to others, but come up with your own answer. Yeah, great piece of advice for startups and also for applying to Y Combinator, sounds like. So, well, this has been fascinating. You run a really interesting business, and I love hearing about all the details of building this two-sided marketplace. So, Eric, thanks for coming on today. And if people want to learn more about Centaur Labs, is there an email, website? What should they do? Yeah, Eric, E-R-I-K at centaurlabs.com, or they can check out our website, centaurlabs.com. Great. Thanks for joining the podcast today. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was fun. (laughs) 